Let me pray, and then and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for um, your word and the truth that is in it, and the way it, the way we find our place in it, and the way we we are found out by it. And I ask God that you would use tonight to help us to see what you have intended by um, by reaching out and and calling Abraham to you by raising up a nation out of his family, by bringing Jesus into this world from that nation, and, and what you set out to accomplish in and through him. God, I pray that we would see that, see that tonight with clarity, and that you would allow us to just have a greater glimpse of how awesome you are, and how great your plan was, and how good your news is. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, turn to Romans 3, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read the first two verses and then stop there. Romans 3.21 But now... So I want to help you understand just the gravity of those two words. To help you see the shift that's happening. Now if, you, if this is your first time... I missed it. Um, great. If this is your first time here, um, then then you have missed all the bad news. So maybe lucky you, I don't know, maybe, maybe you should go back and listen to the podcast. But for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the bad news. And specifically that we're idolatrous at heart, that none of us are good, um, that the, the, the irreligious way of living doesn't work, the, the religious way of trying to um, earn our way or, or boasting in our works doesn't work. And Paul says that none of us are righteous, that we're hosed, all of us. And, and then he says these two words, but now. And so I want to tell you a story to help you understand what I think is just how I experienced some, some life-changing words. So uh, when Kylie was born, actually when, when Ryan, my wife, was pregnant with her, she was measuring small. So she was about three and a half weeks before her due date, and the doctor scheduled this um, last-minute ultrasound appointment, you know, the, the jelly on the belly thing. Uh, only a few of you maybe have done that. I've actually done it for my heart, and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so she, she had this ultrasound appointment, and the, the, the tech says these words that you don't ever want to hear. That's interesting. <laughs> and so it, it was like, no, interesting. No, we don't want interesting. We want normal. So, so the tech... Leaves, goes, and I guess talks to the doctor who was in the office above, and said, comes back and says, oh, your doctor would like to see you now. We're like, okay, this can't be good. So we go to see the doctor, and the doctor's like, hey, um, so there's no amniotic fluid, and that's not great, but, you know, everything's okay. Uh, I've called the hospital, and, and they're going to, they want to see you, just get you hooked up and check you out, everything. So the 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 office where the doctor was was in the parking lot of the hospital. So we literally just walked across the parking lot to the hospital. Once we got in there, uh, we hadn't even done the tour of the. This is our first child. We hadn't done the tour. We didn't know anything. 
And we're like, what in the world is happening? They, they, they knew who we were. They had a room for us. They get us hooked up. And then they check things out, and the nurse comes in and says, your doctor will be here in 30 minutes to deliver your baby. And it was like, we went from, hey, let's, let's go to this ultrasound appointment on our lunch break, then we'll grab lunch, and then we'll go back to work, to an hour and a half later. I'm, I'm sitting outside the operating room in this full scrub going, what in the world is happening? And so this is my first child. This is, for all, for all I know, they haven't used this word because they don't want to scare me, but this is an emergency thing. This is an emergency C-section. So, um, so all kinds of thoughts are going through my head of, of like our daughter's safety and what's going to happen with my wife and the C-section wasn't planned, this wasn't our plan, all that. So we go in, the surgery happens, um, which I got to witness, and it was surreal. And then out comes this baby, and for a, a few seconds, there was silence. And then she cries. And, and her crying is, okay, she, she can breathe at least. She's breathing. Okay, great. And then the doctor says these words, she's good. She's healthy. And all of a sudden, those words, right, relieve all this tension um, of what I thought might happen. And, and those words from that doctor don't even come close to the, to the gravity of what these two words that Paul writes here in Romans 3. Not even, not even close. And to, to give you an idea um, what people have said about these words, and not, not necessarily the but now. In fact, if you want a fun little study, just grab a concordance online or something that's, and look up but now, and you'll find about seven other verses that are huge verses. So this, this is a very big, big phrase, a way in which um, Paul hinges big ideas on these two words. But this paragraph, 21 through 26, Martin Luther says is the chief point and the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. Um, Dr. Leon Morris, who's a well-respected New Testament scholar, says that this paragraph is perhaps the most important single paragraph ever written. And I don't think they're being exaggerating this point. I think, I think there's some truth here. I've, I remember studying these verses in college, and I remember thinking the same thing. And, I, and for the last 20 years of my ministry, I've said the same thing. Like, this is the most important chapter in the Bible, or paragraph in the Bible. I don't, know of, I don't know of a bigger paragraph in the Bible than this one that we're going to study tonight. And so I want to read the whole thing. I just want to read 21 through 26, kind of in its entirety. And then um, I'm going to give you a sheet that's going to have it kind of broken out so we can kind of understand it. Because sometimes with the dashes and with the commas and with the periods. None of that was in the original language, by the way. None of, that, none of the numbers were in the original language. And sometimes it's hard to miss, it's hard to see the logic of what he's saying. And so I have a sheet that I'm going to pass out that has that. But, but let's read it together first. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is. There's some big words here. And so now those of you that have sheets, go ahead and pass those out. And um, here's a few more. So what I've done in this sheet is, the farther to the left it is, the more of a kind of a major point it is. Not major in terms of significance, because there are some really significant things that are indented. But I want you to see kind of what I believe Paul's logic as he's walking down through um, this text. So, when it's on the left, it's kind of a, a main heading, and then there's these subheadings, and even sometimes sub-sub points below it. So, we're just going to walk down through this. Um, I, I want this to be as clear to you as possible, what, what he's saying. And so, I, I even underlined fra- words and phrases that I think are really significant, and some of them we won't even really get to, to dive into, um, just because of time. So, he says, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, um, that phrase is not a new phrase. Actually, let me, let me back up. I, I put a heading under here, what I think is these kind of four movements through, through our text, um, th- down through third, verse 31. First one is that he's introducing what I, what I would like to refer to as the third way. Last week, I talked about the two ways to live, irreligious way and, and the religious way that Paul attacks and says it doesn't work. And if, and if that was the end of the story, it would be terrible, terrible news. But this but now... There is a third way to live, and it's the gospel way. And so he introduces that in this first little section. So the righteousness of God. Uh, during, during the second week of the semester, we said that Paul um, would answer two big questions. One is, um, how can I be um, rescued from my sin and reconciled to God? And the second one is, and this is the one I f- want to focus on, is um, can God be trusted? And here it is. He's getting back to this idea of the righteousness of God. God is righteous, and, and He has proved righteous in what, in what is about to take place. And so he continues. Has been, and it says the word manifested, this, it's this idea of it is seen for what it is. It is shown. Um, so he says, under it, a subheading is apart from the law. So whatever is about to happen is apart from the law. In other words, it's not under the law. Therefore, it can't be held accountable by the law. Also, um, it's not only apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the word law is used in three different ways in this text, I believe. And it's kind of confusing, but you kind of kind of follow the literary context. What I think is happening, Paul... So the first way is, 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 is this first part. Law is the Mosaic Law. So most of the time when Paul uses the word law, I've said this before, he's referring to the Mosaic Law, which is the 613 laws. It's kind of the the thing that God gave the people to have a relationship with Him. When it's capitalized, especially in the phrase law and the prophets, that comes up a few times in the Bible, he's referring to specifically the, the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Pentateuch. 
So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that's capital L, the first five books. And then the prophets represents basically the rest of the Old Testament. So anytime it says the law and the prophets, that's the Bible's way or, or whoever's way of saying the Old Testament. So it's apart from the law. It's not, it's not, it didn't come out of the, 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 Jewish, the Jewish legal system. But yet all of the Old Testament bears witness to this fact. That the faithfulness and the character of, of God is consistent throughout. And that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to this, to this truth that's about to be explained, this gospel. And then he says it. He kind of gives this first kind of introductory to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's, that's a quick, short, tweetable summary of the, of the gospel. And then he says, for there is no distinction. And I believe that is just a further clarification of the word all. When he says all, he's saying all is all. All is all. It's Jews and Gentiles alike. All who who believe. And then the next point is where I believe he's going to explain um, what what I like to refer to as the tip of the gospel. Why do I say the tip of the gospel? I believe, I believe it's the tip because I believe the gospel is bigger than any one verse or any couple verses. It is, it is bigger than, what, than specifically just what Jesus did on the cross. That's not the gospel. That is a very crucial climactic point in the gospel. But the gospel encompasses the story of the Bible, encompasses the story of Israel and, and the life and the, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how it all fits together and how He's both... King and Lord. So that is that full picture is is the gospel. And so if the gospel was a spear that defends God's righteousness, that defeats the devil, and that pierces our hearts for salvation, what he's about to say is the very tip of that pier, of that spear. The very tip. And he, and he says what I believe is three things. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, we've, we've been talking about this. I won't belabor this point, but that's what we've been discussing for the last three weeks. That we're all guilty, and therefore, uh, he says, we don't fulfill our God-glorifying purpose. That, that's, that when, when God made us, we were made to bring glory to Him. And, and we talked about this the, the three weeks ago. That instead of living for the glory of God, we've lived for worshiping creation over Him. We've... Um, We've chosen to take credit for ourselves or not give or not acknowledge Him. And so he says, all have sinned, all is all. The next point, and are justified by His grace as a gift. So because Jesus, so we're legally cleared of our guilt. And this is grace. This word justified is a legal or a forensic term. It is the opposite of condemnation. So it is a, it's a picture of a judge, a just judge, declaring someone righteous. And it says it's all by grace. And the word grace literally means gift or undeserved favor. And so what, what, is, what he's describing is that the first move of the gospel is all the Father. It's the Father's move. Um, one... one author said this, that grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving Himself generously in and through Jesus. 
Now, that's the grace that is being described here. But, but is this idea of a gift, is their idea of a gift, and how to receive gifts and how to give gifts, is it the same as our idea of gifts and of a gift and of gift giving? Actually, the answer might surprise you, and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to this in two weeks. So I'm going to leave you in suspense because um, I want you to come back. But Romans 5, we're going to get into that. So the question is, how are we justified? It says we're justified, okay, how? The answer, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this word redemption is a financial transaction term. It it brings with it um, the idea of slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. So Jesus said, in Mark 10.45. And He came not to be served. Uh, He said He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So this this idea of ransom is is what is connected to this word redemption. There is is a ransom that has been paid and Jesus paid it. So His purchase was our ransom rescue. But how? How is is Jesus' How did He redeem us is the question that, that is kind of should be asked and the, and the answer is right below it. God put, put Him forward as a hilasterion by His blood, which of course all of you know what that word means. So I'm just going to continue on. Not, not really. So the word, the word hilasterion, hilasterion, sorry, I totally butchered it. Hilasterion, it's hilarious, you know. Um, it can, work, it can mean four different things. Actually, depending on your translation, you may have it translated in four different ways. Sometimes it's translated mercy seat. Why? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Uh, another way is propitiation. That's what the ESV translates it. Another way is um, sacrifice of atonement, if you have the NIV or the CSV. And if you have a really old version called the NEB, I believe, it might be translated expiation. So four... One word translated in four different ways. Anytime the Bible, anytime different translations translate words differently, you know that's a, that's a really rich word. It, it must have a really wide variety of meaning. So what does this word mean? Drew's going to help us with that later. Um, so you're going to have to wait. But, there's, like I said, there's just too much. Um, but I summarized it underneath there. I gave you a hint. Jesus' death on a cross bore the weight of our sin and took the punishment we deserve. That's, what, that's essentially what's being described there. So this is, when, when he says by his blood, by the way, this is his first connection to the cross. He, he's not just describing Jesus bleeding. He's describing Jesus' blood being poured out on the cross. He's describing the giving of his life for ours. So, first reference to the cross. So, so, so far we have, um, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified by His grace as a gift. And then lastly, to be received by faith. This is to be received by faith. Salvation, by grace alone, through, through Christ alone, by faith alone. But we'll talk about in, in actually next semester sometime in 
March-ish, February, March. We'll get to chapter 12, um, and we'll see that faith doesn't come alone, is never alone. So lastly, this, this, this gift of, is re- to be received by faith. And this idea that, if you, and we talked a little bit about this last week, um, but all other worldviews or religious systems teach some form of self-salvation, um, but not the third way, not the gospel way. So I want to summarize quickly um, what, what has been said so far in this, in this explanation of the gospel, and I'm going to use the words of, of John Stott. He said it better than I could. The gospel is the good news, that God's grace has turned away His wrath, that God's Son has died our death, and and bore our judgment, and that God has mercy on the undeserving, and that there is nothing left for us to do, or even to contribute, that faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. That's a summary of what's happened so far. Okay, so now he's going to move into um, what I think this third movement is, He's going to show us how this gospel reveals God's righteousness. He's going to come back to this idea, an idea he started in chapter 1, verse 17, if you remember. He talked about the righteousness of God being revealed. And we're going to see how we can trust God. Um, So it says, this was to show God's righteousness. So this grace by faith display that God God has integrity and fulfills promises He made. In other words, He's trustworthy. So why? How does this reveal His righteousness? Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Okay? So God left unpunished sins of former generations because of the future once-for-all sacrifice of His Son. In other words, so this idea of divine forbearance is, is God, um, he, he left unpunished sins, or He postponed the, the full penalty that those sins deserved under the law. And, and, and he did that by using this temporary sacrificial system. So if you remember in the Old Testament, when God gave them the law, He told them, this is what I want you to do. And by the way, when you don't do it, and you won't because you can't, this is how you fix it temporarily. And, and so this sacrificial system of you know sacrificing an animal, bringing your 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 produce or your first fruits or something they they had these little ways of paying for their sin and then just to kind of help maybe cover it cover the things they didn't get to cover once a year they would have this day of atonement where the priest would go in and he would have to kill an animal just for him and his family and then then he'd have to sacrifice an animal for all of the people and this and this animal would be called the scapegoat and they would release it out um, beyond the borders of Israel is kind of like all of, all of God's wrath is, is on that animal and it's gone. Um, and it's removed. But it's just removed for a year. And every year it was temporary. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus came and His sacrifice was once and for all. That He's referred to as the, the perfect Lamb of God who was slain. So this is huge. So it says, it was to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was also to show His righteousness at the present time. So, so what happened, that was what happened dealing with the past. What about the present? He says, 
He's not only trustworthy then, but He's trustworthy now. And it says two things that I think are fascinating to me, that are incredible, that blew my mind when I first learned them. He says, he, it, this, to show, this shows His righteousness because, one, He is just. Um, in other words, He is both the one who must punish our sin in order to be just. So, for God to be just, He has to, he has to punish sin. You and I, uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but you and I want justice. It's in us. We want justice. Now, if, it's, if we're the one that make a mistake, we might want to pass. Or if it's someone we love that's made a mistake, a mistake or has done something wrong, we might want you know, undeserved grace. But if it's something that happens to us or something that happens to someone we love and it's, and it's evil and it's wicked or it's whatever, that's when we want justice. And all of us do. And so God, for God to be just, He can't just be like, oh, you know what, she didn't mean it, so it's okay. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't mean to do that. He, didn't, he wasn't trying to. He's really sincerely sorry. And so, it's okay. No, He wouldn't be just. And He wouldn't be trustworthy. And so, there had to be something. So God says, okay, Jesus, You will pay the penalty. So, you will, you will take what we deserve. Um, so that's it, it. His righteousness is shown by His being just in this, in this sense. And then next, what, what, what is crazy about this is, not only is He just, but He's also the justifier. He's also the one who is, who is sending His Son. He's the one paying the price. He's the one taking the penalty. And so He is the one um, being punished in order to justify us. So because God initiates this plan and sees it through taking our punishment for us, He is the justifier. He is just, which is a divine attribute, and the justifier, which is a divine action. And all of it is seen in the cross of Christ. So I want to pause there. And I want to give you a minute or so to just kind of reflect on this this page, because this page is the important page, and we'll get to the second page, but I want us to kind of reflect on this, so take a moment, take a minute or so, and just kind of reflect on what Paul's being saying, what Paul's saying here. All right. 
So back to Paul's flow of thought. So if you're if you're kind of paying attention, three twenty-one through all of chapter four is really one long, lengthy point. So he starts with a bang, this first paragraph. And then he now he is going to deal with some objections that maybe they would have or maybe they should have. So he's going to at he's going to go back to his what we call a diatribe, this, this, this uh, linguistic way of kind of um, answering questions that people might have or, or getting the audience to engage in this process. So he's going to ask some questions and then answer the questions. But all of this is to transition and to lead into where he's going in chapter 4. And it's this big transition and you'll see what I mean. So he starts off by, by pointing out, that, listen, no one can boast in this. There's no boasting in this. So far, in, in 1.30 and in 2.17 and 2.23, he's accused the um, Gentiles of being boastful, and then he's accused the Jews of having nothing to boast about. And he's kind of highlighted them, but I think it probably especially he's, he's talking to the Jews here. You have nothing to boast about. Yes, you were God's chosen people, but listen, all of us have sinned. So he says, what about this law? Is it, it, are we living by the law um, or by law of works? By, uh, by the law of faith? or And he says, no, by the law of faith. It's, he's making it clear that like, faith has always been the driving principle by which God operates. And that he's going to get into more. In fact, um, I didn't say this, but in, the, in answering this boasting question, if you look at, don't do it now, but in 4, one, four uh, verses 1 and 2, He's going to deal with Abraham boasting. And then in um, verses 3 through 8, he's going to deal with this law versus works thing and, and how someone is justified by faith. He's going to answer that question. And then he says, What about, is God the God of Jews or the God of Gentiles? Or, or like, who, who is this? Like, is he Gentiles too? And he says, He confirms, Yes, of Gentiles too. He's, he's answering this question that, that ultimately maybe both are asking. I thought God, uh, I thought Israel was God's chosen people. So, um, what happened to that? Does that matter? Is it, it, I thought it was just for His people. And what Paul's saying is, listen, from the very beginning, when, when God called Abraham, He said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And, and that was intended to to be the Gentiles too. All the nations is all the Gentiles. So, in, in other words, what Paul is confirming is all people can be God's people. And he says, since God is one, um, God is consistent, He is faithful, He is not duplicitous, He, he doesn't change His plan, um, all people can be His people. He will justify, which we've talked about, Specifically, he says, justify the circumcised by faith. We've already talked about this in last, in last week when he deals with those who, are, those who are circumcised who don't obey might as well be uncircumcised. And those who are uncircumcised and obey might as well be circumcised. So he's using the kind of the similar deal. Those who are circumcised by faith, in other words, Jews, Jewish people, can be justified by faith in Jesus. Gentile people can be justified by faith in Jesus. Then he ends with this, so, are we just throwing out the law? Did that not matter? And they've kind of already asked this question. He's, he's, well, he's asked the question for them, but he's bringing this idea again to, 
to again, to reiterate, no, the law is a good thing. By no means, we're not getting rid of the law. In fact, as Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is what Jesus says, he, sa- he says He's doing in Matthew 5.17. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So in the same way Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill all of the Old Testament, it says, uh, in other words, the law will be upheld by those who are justified by faith in Jesus. So, that's what's happening. And that's going to lead us right into examining Abraham and seeing that how Abraham, um, from the very beginning, before the law, before circumcision, was justified by faith. So, I, I, I said something, I don't know if you caught. When I was kind of summarizing the Gospel, I said, I said that God's grace turned away His wrath. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by, like, where is wrath in this text? And what does this hilasterion word mean anyway? Well, both of those questions Drew's going to help us out with. So we're going to take a break, and then he will get up. Uh, What I'm going to be doing, Scott said some really big things there and some really important things there. So what I'm going to be doing for like the first half is basically kind of restating some of the things that he said because I want you to get it. I want you to grasp it. And then I'm going to spend the second half of my talk defending uh, those things that Scott said because a number of the things that he said are actually under attack today. There are a number of people who do not like the things that Scott said. And, and I don't just mean like atheists. I mean people who call themselves Christians who would say that what Scott just told you is very unchristian. And so I want to explain some of that and, and defend some of that uh, as well. And so that's what we'll do. We've got a lot to, to tackle, but um, I'm excited about it. I love this topic. I spent uh, the summer after my junior year overseas in uh, the country of Turkey. Turkey is predominantly Muslim, although they're not like real hardcore practicing Muslim. At least most of them aren't. It's kind of by name only. But because I was there, I I learned a little bit about interacting with um, people of the Muslim faith. And then I ended up spending a year in a a kind of same kind of country, Muslim-ish country. Um, and, and so I, I learned through that time things about kind of interacting with people of Muslim faith. And, and the missionary that I was living with over that summer, I remember having a conversation with him about this. And, and he said basically when it comes to like debating Muslims, uh, there's a couple, couple key like rules there. The number one rule for debating Muslims is don't debate Muslims. All right. <laughs> Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really go anywhere productive, generally, to sit there and just try to kind of argue it out over who's, who's better. It doesn't really aff- doesn't help them come to faith anymore. So, if at all possible, avoid doing that. It's not going to help you very much. Second one, though, he said is this. If you ever end up in a discussion with a Muslim about faith, and hopefully it is more discussion than debate, you ask them this three-part question. And the first question you, the first part of the question is this. Is Allah just? And the answer they'll give you is a definite 100% yes. Allah is just. He always does what is right. He always punishes the guilty and He always vindicates the innocent. You can trust that He will do what is right. The second question you ask is this, is Allah merciful? And the the answer you will get is, without a doubt, 100% yes, Allah is merciful. The Quran speaks to this over and over and over again, that you can keep your hope because uh, Allah is merciful and forgiving to those who have sinned. And then the third question you ask is this, 
How? How can Allah be both just and merciful? Because by definition, to be a God who forgives sins means that you are not just because a just God always punishes sin. So how can you be both just and merciful at the same time without undoing those two things? Uh, the very moment you begin to show mercy and let sins off the hook, you begin to lose justice in that back. It's a huge question and one that must be answered, I believe, by anyone of any faith, including those of the Christian faith. We're not off the hook on this one either. Paul has just said over the last three weeks, ever since Colossians 1.18, um, that every human being stands as sinful before the righteous and holy God. And he has also said that God punishes sin. That He will punish sin. And he starts off with 1.18, that the wrath of God is being poured out on mankind for all their sinfulness, for all their wickedness. And this is the truth, that when we reject God to go our own way, we sever ourselves from the God who made us. And, and part of His wrath, we heard it over again in Romans 1.24, in Romans 1.26, in Romans 1.28, part of His wrath is handing us over to those sins and saying, if this is what you want, this is what you will get. And He gives us over to those sins so that we move further and further into them. And the result of this is that we will live out our life, the rest of our lives, cut off from the God who made us and who loves us and who made us to know Him. The God that we will find our greatest joy and purpose and hope when we know Him, we are cut off from Him because of our sin. And not just in this life, but we are cut off in eternity. That after you die, that you spend the rest of eternity cut off from Him. Living separated from the God you were made for and living in suffering and torment, we call this hell. And it is right for God to send you there. And it is just for God to send those who are in sin there because that is what they have asked for. That is what we have asked for by our lives. One, one uh, writer, I think it may have been C.S. Lewis, said, in the end there will only be two different kinds of people. Those who have said to God, your will be done, and those who eventually God said to them, okay, your will be done. If what you want is to be apart from me, if, you, if what you want is to reject me, if what you want is to do your own thing away from me, then you get to be away from me now. And so they will rightfully spend the rest of their lives and then after their lives away from Him because of those things. That is why we said in the very first week that Martin Luther, that 16th century reformer who changed kind of the game of Christianity by changing our perspective on the book of Romans, that's why before his perspective on Romans changed, he hated Romans 1.17 so much. Because Romans 1.17 says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is displayed. The righteousness of God is revealed. And he hated that because he knew what the righteousness of God meant. A righteous and just God punishes sinners, and He knows what He is. He's a sinner. And so He hated that verse. Did not like the idea of it as it ate away at Him. See, we say, and this is where the problem comes in, we say that God is forgiving and gracious. But the same question is asked of us as I would ask of my Muslim friends. How can He be both of those things? How can He be... Uh, gracious without compromising His righteousness? 
How can he be merciful and forgiving without compromising his justice? And many would say that uh, the key question, actually, Scott, Scott mentioned it from up here just a few minutes ago. Maybe the key question of the book of Romans is this. Can God be trusted? Can we really trust him? If, he, if he's the kind of God who's forgiving people by grace through faith, then doesn't that mean that he's violating his integrity as a judge? And if he really is just letting everyone in, whether they obey the law or not, whether they are being circumcised or not, isn't that being unfair to the Israelites who he called, to the Jews who he called as his own special people and gave them the law so that they could be in covenant with him? This is the, this is the question that Paul has, these, this two-part question that Paul is seeking to answer in the book of Romans. And the answer to that question, how can God be both just and merciful? How can he be fair to himself as a judge and fair to his promises to Israel is found in verse 25 of this text. And it's found in this one amazing word, hilasterion, that you heard Scott talk about. Now, people, as he said, have a difficulty knowing exactly how they want to translate this word. I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in this and spend too much time. Just briefly, I'll give you the rundown. If you read the NIV, you will see it says that God placed Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement. That's how they translate that word, hilasterion. It is basically kind of the broadest way to translate this, to say we don't have it exactly, but it's, we know it means a sacrifice of atonement, and so it's kind of the, the best catch-all. It's not a bad translation. It does kind of catch all of of what it's saying. It just doesn't get to the specific point that much. So the other way that this gets translated in the New English translation is mercy seat. And that's because, okay, follow me here for just a second. Uh, The Old Testament, the the New Testament is written in what language originally? Greek. Greek, okay? And the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So the New Testament is written in Greek, Old Testament in Hebrew. But there was this version of the Old Testament that was written in the Greek when they realized, man, not enough people speak Hebrew to read this. We need to translate it into a language everyone can read. And so they translated it into the Greek and they called it the Septuagint. All right? And the Septuagint, it's the Greek Old Testament, if you ever hear that. When you go and read in the Septuagint and you go to Leviticus 16, Scott just described this day. It's called the Day of Atonement. When the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take this blood, first the blood of a bull, um, for his own sins and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. This, this, this golden box in the middle that had on the top of it this lid with these two cherubim angels and their wings coming up at the top and it was said that the presence of God dwelled right there between the wings of those angels on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies and once a year the high priest would go in behind that curtain and he would take the blood of a bull and he would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant there. And, and, he would, uh, and then he would go in with the blood of a goat, uh, blood of a goat, uh, goat slash bull mixed together makes goat. That's where that word came from. If you want to know, that's, I don't know how that came out. He would go in with this, with the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle it on the top of that mercy, of, of that, yeah, of that uh, Ark of the Covenant. And that top of the Ark of the Covenant is literally called the mercy seat. And in the Greek Old Testament, when it describes the mercy seat, it says he goes and he sprinkles the blood on the hilasterion. So what might be being said here, actually, if Paul is using the language of the Old Testament, then he's saying that Jesus is the new mercy seat, that Jesus is the place where atonement is made before the living God. I actually like that. 
And I think that, I think that there's a good precedent for, for believing that maybe this is what Paul is getting at here when he says this, because Paul does like to use uh, Old Testament language a lot. Um, but I really like this one too. The ESV says propitiation. If you read in your ESV there, it says they placed him forth as a propitiation. And whenever we see this, this word written outside of the Bible, just in like regular, everyday Greek, whenever they use the word hilasterion, this is what it actually means, propitiation. And that's why I think that maybe the ESV may be the best choice here, which is propitiation. The question, though, is what does propitiation mean? Like, that's the, that doesn't clarify thing. Oh, thanks, it's propitiation. We all know it's propitiation now. Thank you, Drew. Um, but, but what does that word actually mean? Um, the word was used, when the Greeks would use it, when it was used in Greek culture, it was used um, to describe the appeasing of someone and their wrath. To appease someone's wrath. Specifically when we see it used in, like, like I said, outside the Bible, when we see it used in the Greek language, it is used describing appeasing the gods. When the gods get angry at you. When the gods are mad, when they're starting to like pour down wrath, when they're starting to do bad things to our village or to our town, we put forth a propitiation um, to appease their wrath, to turn their wrath away from us. So usually that would be some kind of a sacrifice, like a blood sacrifice. So we sacrifice an animal, the animal dies so that now we don't have to die. Um, and that takes the place of those things. Um, and, and this is what I believe... Paul is getting at. By the way, if you translate a mercy seat, the mercy seat was the place where propitiation took place. So that's why I'm okay with going with mercy seat there. But um, I think propitiation is what Paul is getting at. And this is the answer to the question. So if the question is, how can God be merciful without punishing my sin? Here's the answer. He always punishes your sin. He does punish your sin. He will. You can rest assured that there will not be a single sin in the history of the universe that goes unpunished by the righteous and holy God. But here's the really cool part. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your trust in Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and who rose back from the grave, then the, the beautiful news for you is this. God already punished your sin. All of it. Every sin you've ever committed at any point in your life, the worst mistakes you've ever made, the things you did today, the things you will do tomorrow, the sin and mistakes that you will make, every bit of it, when you placed your faith in Jesus, God took all of your sin and He placed it on His Son and then He punished all of it on Jesus so that there's no more penalty left for you to bear. Jesus took all of that for you. Which is an amazing and incredible and beautiful thought. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more penalty for you to bear. That's, that's why we don't have to worry about eternal separation from God or separation from Him in this lifetime. Jesus already took that for you if you've placed your faith in Him. But there are some people who do not like this idea. There are some people who hate this idea and who attack this idea a lot, who, who have a theological problem with the translation of propitiation, and they would much rather choose anything else. The problem is this. This word was used to talk about appeasing the Greek pagan gods, like Zeus. Um, and, and can we really say that the God of the Bible is like those 
bloodthirsty pagan gods that are always getting mad, and, and in order to, to try and get them off your case, you're going to have to kill something and sacrifice them. Do we really believe that the God of the Bible is a God like Zeus? Is a God like these other Greek pagan gods that, that seem to be so wicked and moody and, 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 and that we have to satisfy Him with blood to make everything okay? There are a lot of people who hate that, and so they prefer what the RSV standard, and this is an older translation, but what the RSV uses, and that is this term, expiation. Uh, expiation, the definition of the expiation is basically the removal or the covering of something. In this, in this case, the removal or the covering of sin. So, um, I'm a sinful person and Jesus comes in and by his death he removes that sin from me. Um, one of the first guys to really press this, this translation, this idea forward um, was a guy by the name of C.H. Dodd. He was a New Testament scholar some 70, 80 years ago. C.H. Dodd and he was well familiar with Greek mythology. He knew the Greek myths very well. The Greek um, pantheon, the gods there. And so he hated this idea that we would try to compare those kinds of gods to the God of the Bible. And so he preferred to use the term expiation. Um, let me kind of to, to give you kind of a, a basic idea. That the view of expiation is that Jesus cleanses us and allows us to be forgiven. So if propitiation is Jesus stepping in and deflecting the wrath of, the wrath of God that's coming at me, Jesus steps in the middle and he takes that. That's propitiation. Expiation is me building a wall between myself and God through my sins and then Jesus coming and taking the wall away. Okay? Now, if both ideas actually sound good to you, that's okay. Because I believe both ideas are biblical. The Bible talks about both of those. All right? And I don't have any problem with expiation. I believe that's an idea. I have a problem with people who say only expiation and they don't want anything to do with propitiation. And they think that's gross. And they think that that's wrong. That's where my problem is. Um, the main argument, the main reason people are against it though, is they say that this God of wrath that has to have blood to satisfy himself does not seem to match up with the God of love. It seems so primitive. It seems so pagan. It seems so backwards. It's like, you remember like those cartoons or those movies as a kid, like, um, like um, people like these like native pagan people on an island who would have to like sacrifice somebody to like a volcano so that the god of the volcano wouldn't be mad at them anymore and how kind of weird and backwards that seemed that's that's what this sounds like when we say that that god needed propitiation to do those things it sounds so often and some people have actually gone so far and they go and not just that but he doesn't even punish the guilty people he takes it out on his own son he goes and he gets mad at me for my, son, for my sin, and then he goes and he, and he beats up his own son. He, he murders his own son to take that anger and that rage out. That's why people like William Paul Young, the guy who wrote the book The Shack, um, has come out attacking this idea. He wrote a book several, several years ago called um, Lies We Believe About God. And propitiation is one of them. He thinks this is a wicked lie to say that God would have to murder Jesus to feel better about me. Take away my sin. Uh, Michael Gunger from the worship band, Gunger, um, that got really big in around 2009, 2010, has come out publicly blasting the idea of propitiation. They called it divine child abuse. 
that God would go and abuse His own Son to save those things. Um, one of the mainline uh, denominations in America actually dropped a hymn. You know the, the, the hymn, In Christ Alone? In Christ alone my hope is found. I love that song. In 2013, they cut it out of every hymnal in their churches because of this one line, When on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. And so they dropped the song completely and said, We will no longer sing that song because of this idea. And I get the heart. I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to defend the idea that God is loving, and He is. But I still think that they're wrong. I still think they're missing it, and here's why. First, as I said, this term hilasterion consistently, some would actually say exclusively means propitiation in Greek literature. That's like the only definition we have in Greek literature for it. And so it only makes sense that this is what it was. It was only in the last 70 years that people tried to change it and say, no, we don't think it means propitiation anymore. We think it means only expiation now. So, no, consistently, linguistically, it is always, oh, look at that, that's a rhyme, like I'm doing something. Um, that has always met that idea of propitiation. Um, second, here's the second reason, you can't read the Bible without seeing that God is a God of wrath. He is definitely a God of love. True and true. God is love. That is His primary That is his primary attribute as it is described in 1 John that at the core of Him, I don't know if primary, but it is at the core of who He is, is love. There's no good, but there's also no getting around the fact that He has wrath towards sin and towards injustice. The Old Testament mentions uh, God's wrath over 580 times. And this is where William Paul Young and Michael Gunger go, yeah, yeah, but that was Old Testament God. Old Testament God was mean, but New Testament God, He's loving and nice. Um, He's seen a counselor since the Old Testament. He's learned to deal with His anger, and so He doesn't do that anymore. No, no, no. Wrath is just as much there in the New Testament. We read about it in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. Ephesians 5 says that God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. John 3.36 says that if someone rejects Jesus, God's wrath remains on them. No, wrath is a very real thing in the Bible. But the third reason that I, I prefer propitiation is I believe that expiation alone does not do justice to God's justice. Like we just said, there must be a punishing of sin for God to be right, and so I need that He for Him to punish it in Jesus on my behalf. Now, why then do people get so upset about this idea? Why do people get so upset about Jesus um, substituting in my place and dying for me and, and atoning for my sins? Why do they get so angry about it? Here's why I think they do. I think it's because they confuse what the Greeks were doing with their gods with what the Bible is doing with its God. I think C.H. Dodd, who knew all about Greek mythology, started reading that into what the Bible is saying, and it's not true. The Bible believes in propitiation, just like the Greek gods, but it differs. The kind of propitiation that the Bible talks about differs in three key ways. All right? The first way it differs is that uh, the reason for propitiation. In the pagan view, in the old Greek view, the reason that you offer propitiation was because the gods were ill-tempered and moody and fickle and easily offended. You never knew what you were going to do that might tick them off. 
But they could, like that, they could just get angry and they could get mad. And so they'd just start pouring wrath on you. They'd send sickness on your village. They'd do whatever. They'd, they'd send drought on your crops. And so you're going to need to think of something to keep them from being mad. That's the pagan view. In the biblical view, the reason for propitiation is because of God's holy nature. It's because as a holy God, He must and will always punish wickedness and sin. And there's never any doubt about what makes God angry. Like, the, like in the old pagan view, you didn't know what was going to tick Zeus off. Okay? But there's never any doubt in the Bible about what makes God mad. God is always against injustice. God is always against hate. God is always against idolatry. God is always against everything that tears His creation apart. His wrath is not a temper tantrum. It's not your dad losing it and everybody stay out of dad's way because he's in one of those moods again or he's getting too angry and he's getting too worked up. So everybody, that's not God. God's wrath is a settled opposition against everything that tears you and the rest of His creation apart. That's what His wrath, He's against the cancer that is working through human beings and through the rest of creation. That is His wrath. The second way that propitiation differs between the pagan way and the biblical view is uh, in the initiator. This is the way John Stott puts it, and John Stott is actually the the guy who's given me these three differences. John Stott says, in the pagan view, people initiated what the gods would not. So you make the gods mad, they're not going to do anything to make it right. Hey, that's on you. We're the ones with all the power, so you better figure out a way to make us happy. You better come up with a sacrifice. And so people would have to initiate what the gods would not. In the biblical view, God initiated what we could not. In the Bible's view, God came and did what was impossible for me to do. There's nothing that I could do to to appease God's wrath. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not powerful. So God Himself sends Jesus. That's what it says in Romans 3.25. Not that we presented Jesus as a propitiation, but that God presented Jesus as a propitiation. The third way that this differs between the biblical and, and the... Uh, And the pagan view is the nature of the sacrifice or the nature of the propitiation. In the pagan view, people offered whatever they had to the gods. I offer it this goat. I offer the gods this bull. I offer the gods this vegetable, this grain harvest of mine, whatever I have. In the biblical view, God offers himself. God gives himself. Like I said, there's some people who do not like the thought of us sinning and then God taking it out on His Son. That that phrase they use, divine child abuse. That God just gets mad at me and so He beats His Son, Jesus. No, no, they're forgetting a really key part of the Christian view about God, which is that He is triune. That Jesus Himself, though He is distinct from the Father, that they are of the same substance and essence. That God Himself came to die in our place because Jesus is God Himself. I love the way John Stott puts this. This is one of the most beautifully succinct ways to describe what atonement is. It says this, God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. I should also just say this, this idea of propitiation is not a new one with Paul. He didn't 
come up with it himself, and he certainly didn't look at the Greek culture around him and their mythology and go, ooh, that sounds like a nice idea. I'm going to start using that to describe the way God loves and forgives us. No, no, no. 700 years before Paul wrote these words down, another guy sat down with a scroll and began to write out these words from Isaiah 53, prophesying about the coming Messiah, about Jesus' coming. Isaiah wrote this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way. We've all turned away from God. We've all severed ourselves from Him. We've all separated our lives away from the God who made us. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus all of our sins so that He could redeem us back and make us right with Him once again. This is the beauty of propitiation. This is the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross. If you know Him, if you've placed your faith in Him, there is no punishment left for you. Jesus took it all. If you don't, Jesus still died for that to happen. And so our pleading with you is that you would, that you would open your eyes to who Jesus is, that you would be willing to place your trust in Him, that you would stop trying to earn your way, be good enough, but that you would let Jesus take your sins from you and you would let Him take the punishment that you rightly deserve so that you could spend the rest of your life knowing and loving and serving this God who made you for that reason. Let me pray and then we'll wrap up. Dear God, I thank You for the cross. I thank You for propitiation and expiation. I thank You for the way that Jesus... uh, took from me all my sins. I thank you for the way that he took for me all the punishment that I deserve and all the penalty that I deserve. I thank you um, for that reality and I pray that you would make it reality to us in this room. For those of us who already know you, who've already trusted you, that you would let that be something that sits at the center of who we are and that your spirit would drive it deeper into our lives and change us with it. And for those in here who do not yet know you or who think they know you, but they have not placed their trust in you, I pray that your spirit would make this truth alive to them tonight. That you would open their eyes to see you and trust in you and and let you take from them um, their sins and give to them your love and your righteousness through Jesus. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We've got a couple of things that we want to let you know about as we wrap up tonight. Kelsey's going to go ahead and share that with you.